Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Brilliant. We're, uh, it's really good to see a lovely warm room of people today. Brilliant. Um, lots of things going on in our community. Um, we've, we're in a series at the moment, teaching series, and Stephanie and I have been working through that from, from the beginning of the year. And we're kind of going to take this series all the way through to Easter at that point. It feels really good to immerse ourselves in the Gospels, in the story of Jesus, especially as Ruth has been saying as we move from one season of the church calendar into another, and as Lent begins this week. Um, so we're in the Gospel of John today um, for part seven of this series. And the scripture's going to come up behind me, and uh, you can read along. If you've got it on your phone, you can do that too. I'll read it out. So John seven fifty three. Then each of them went home. Chapter 8. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All of the people came to him, and he sat down, he began to teach, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said to test him. They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Verse 12, And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a really fascinating encounter here. Um, and I don't know if there's um, a shorter story that contains so much tension than this one, because there's a lot of tension in this story. And it's a really short story. And there's probably no better one-liner than the response that Jesus brought. But we'll get to that in a moment. There's a, there's a passage, there's a, there's a tale of two, uh, separate from this story of two women who come before a young king. And they were both pregnant. They both gave birth to two sons. They lived in the same house. One of the sons died and the other, other lived. And so they, they, were, they were disputing which son belongs to, you know, which mother can have the one son that is left. They brought the, the son before the young king. The two women kind of claimed to be the mother of the one son. And the young king decided how we're going to f- sort out this dispute. Um, we'll call the sword bearer and we'll, we'll cut the baby in half and we'll give half to each of the women. Um, and of course, when actually that was going to be carried out, the real mother screamed out, no, I'd rather this lady take my son than my son be killed. Um, it's actually found in First Kings chapter 3. It's actually a tale of Solomon. It's one of the tales in how he actually got this reputation of being a wise king because he knew what he was doing all along. And I'm sharing that with you this morning because that is the kind of story, the kind of feeling that people listening in on 
or even watching present at this moment that we just read about with Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. That's the kind of feeling they would have had. That's the kind of story they would have had. There's this profound wisdom um, that is coming from somewhere that Jesus is kind of bringing into uh, this particular story. That's the first thing to say about John 8. Um, that's the kind of thing people would have had in their mind as they witnessed it. The other thing to say is that at the bottom of your Bibles, you'll see like a, a little bit of writing that says that, like a little footnote says this passage was not actually found in some of the oldest manuscripts. Um, and that is actually true. Bible scholars agree that um, that story wasn't original to the Gospel of John. In fact, it's got a style that's a little bit more like the Gospel of Luke. Um, but nevertheless, it was inserted at some point. And some would say that it interrupts the flow from chapter 7 to chapter 8. It's kind of shoehorned in at a later date. Other people, other commentators would say that the placement is actually really perfect because it, it somehow kind of punctuates or captures a mood change from chapter 7 to chapter 8. In chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in the temple, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and people are getting really interested in Jesus. In chapter 8, it's really quite dark. In fact, Jesus says some of the harshest things that he says in chapter 8 of John. And so there's a thought that actually the way to kind of bridge that and maybe even to highlight what Jesus is getting very agitated about is this particular story. This is some of the commentators' views um, on why this story there. So if you're wondering what that footnote is in your Bible, this story was inserted. But this story um, has so much here for us. Um, probably not penned by John, but put into this gospel. And it's certainly like a historically accurate story. It happened in the life of ministry of Jesus. There's no doubt that the Holy Spirit has used this quite prophetically to speak over the years to the church. We're going to get into that right now. So for a minute, we're going to camp out in the passage and kind of understand what's going on. Um, the text begins with Jesus going to the Mount of Olives. Um, and he's been, that's on the east side of Jerusalem. He's had a day of, of ministry. Um, so he's Really quite tired, and at sun, at sunrise the next day, we find Jesus back then teaching at the temple courts, and the crowds are gathered around him. And there's more interest coming around Jesus. Um, I imagine if in this room right now, someone stood up in the middle of my teaching and started to call someone else out in the room for for their life, for their life, for their sin, for something going on. Imagine that that happened. It'd be really, really awkward. Well, that's exactly what happens here, and it's not something that's going to happen this morning. <laughs> the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're trying to trap Jesus. The passage actually tells us this. The, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus um, between a rock and a hard place, and here's why. Adultery in the law was a crime punishable by stoning. We can read about that in Leviticus 20. So on one hand, the Pharisees think, if Jesus was to pardon this woman, kind of let her off the hook, then he could be accused of not taking sin seriously. He could be accused of not taking the law of Moses seriously. On the other hand, if Jesus condemns the woman uh, to death, to stoning, then his reputation as this wandering rabbi of compassion and grace is, well, disputable, um, perhaps even nonsense. Um, he's been going around ministering to the least, the last, and the lost. And so if he stones a woman, to, if, he, if he gives his okay to the stoning of this woman, kind of wipes all that out. So he's kind of put on the spot, backed into a corner, and they're trying to trap him. The rules are quite clear on this, and Jesus reacts in the most unexpected way. Um, he declares this, let 
the one who has never sinned through the first stone. It's a profound and wise line, a bit like the, the king at the start that I was telling you about. Um, very profound, and it kind of ingeniously exposes the inherent immorality nearly at the, at the heart of the law itself um, by saying not even, no matter what the woman actually did in this scenario, um, or whether in fact any sinner deserves to die, Jesus is kind of saying, well, it's, it would only be for the sinless person, the, the justified, to be able to carry it out. Um, it's kind of a really intelligent, wise thing to say. And even for Jesus, who, quote, knew no sin, um, to say that human beings walking around with the logs coming out of our eyes to condemn a woman like this. I suppose the central point of the story is this, that the people accusing this woman of this sin were in no position to judge her. And Jesus was inviting anyone without sin to cast the first stone, knowing that no one met the requirements. So they, he was essentially calling them to drop their stones, which is what actually happens in the story. And in the sense, Jesus is actually repudiating a law of the Old Testament. We're not going to get into that super deeply, but the, the passage describes the men as catching the woman in adultery, and it's nearly like Jesus catches the men in their hypocrisy at the same time. Um, and let's just note that it was all men in the story there too. The self-righteousness of these accusers pointing out the sin of this woman and calling in it, this sinner to be executed. It's nearly like Jesus is saying, listen, if we follow this law all the way through, we're all going to be up on the line to be stoned. That's the point. The law doesn't make sense. We can't enforce the law because we're all in the same boat. So therefore we drop the stones. It's like, it's incredibly wise. It's the wisdom of the Lord. And it's in a sense Jesus' teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection actually kind of alters the way we read the Old Testament. That's the thing. As Christians, we read the Old Testament through a lens, a Christocentric lens, through the lens of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so that's what Jesus is actually, in a sense, teaching us in that line. He's, 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 he's coming to bring a fuller revelation, a fuller idea or image of what God is actually like. Is God the kind of God who stones people like that? Or is God the God of what we're going to find out? Jesus is the fullest revelation of that. A summary of what I've just said would be this, that Jesus basically points to this third way. He points to a way that is different from one or the other. He kind of points to a third way and points to a third way forward, not one that is one that brings judgment or acts out of hypocrisy or self-righteousness, but one that actually brings life, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. It's really important for us probably to take a note of, talk about sin for a little moment, um, because we're talking about sin here. Um, I think a lot of us have been brought up in religious environments and this term has been used, and sin, it's not a common thing in our society and culture to talk about, but in the church, it is. And I think we've been taught that it's really a legal framework that we should think of that word through, like a right and wrong legal term. Either right or you're wrong. The Eastern church have never had that understanding. The whole like, side of that church in, in the East, Eastern Orthodox, have never understood sin that way. They see it as a sickness as a death, as, as a disease, something that we're kind of infected with. It's not sins, but it's sin. It's like the virus that infects us. It's, 
It's that kind of way of death. It's not this right or wrong thing. It's just something that we're all coping with, dealing with, infected by. We even see in Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, that story where Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and then the Pharisees again go, why is he eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, and I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's like Jesus is actually coming alongside people who need a doctor. It's like thinking about this whole world that we live in, and the kind of the brokenness of it as nearly like a sickness rather than something that's kind of dividing people into right and to wrong. But the whole thing that Jesus does in this passage with this woman when he's put into this corner and he's, say, the pick aside and he comes up with this kind of line, he kind of exposes the hypocrisy of the accusers in one short sentence. And he's nearly calling them to drop their stones. And it's what they literally do one by one they drop their stones it actually says that the elders leave first and i can't i don't want to read too much into the text but it's kind of interesting to me that it's like the elders that leave first and sometimes it's maybe the most young exuberant full of the law kind of guys that kind of the last to get it and maybe it's some of the more wiser older elders that kind of really get it quicker and understand I'm going to call what Jesus does here as he chooses the creative, messy, third way of mercy. Because that thing happens next in the story, which is quite famous, you know, where Jesus bends down and he writes in the sand. And you kind of see that depicted in all those Jesus films, especially all the cheesy ones, where he draws in the sand. What is that all about? Some people think Jesus is now revealing himself as God as Yahweh because if you go back to Deuteronomy it says that God wrote the two tablets of stone with the finger of God wrote the law and so Jesus is like rewriting the law in the ground like it's kind of like pointing to that other people think he's maybe writing the list of sins of all the accusers that they're blind to on the ground I don't know what that says about the commentator who said that some people think it's him writing in the dust which is quite appropriate as we approach the beginning of Lent, um, kind of emphasizing that we're all human, all made from the dust, from dust we've come and from dust we shall return, so we're all in the same boat. Others think he's just having a doodle and showing complete contempt to their ridiculous question and scenario. Maybe I'm reading too much into the text, but I actually quite like Jesus' willingness to get down into the dirt, because I think that's nearly like a metaphor perhaps for what he's really suggesting here is that Jesus is willing to get down into the, into the dirt and into the mess. He kneels down. He's also really willing to be creative. He's doing something in the dirt creatively. We don't know what that is, but his whole response to this scenario is something out of left field. It's a wisdom from elsewhere. It's a creative solution to a difficult Situation, I suppose, one that's kind of going to seem entrapped. And I like to think of this as the creative and messy third way of mercy. That's what Jesus is doing. It's the creative and messy third way of mercy. Because the Christ-like way, the, the, the way that we're called to live as Christians, as little Christs, and all of us here gathering to worship Jesus today, is a way of mercy. 
constantly refuse, refusing to judge. We're called to refuse to judge and instead nearly turn judgment upon ourselves, not in a heavy way, but in like a, like a reflective way to, to, to swim in grace and to think well of the other and to always be examining our hearts if we want to use kind of Sam-like language. And that's what's kind of going on in this story, that Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy of the accusers. And he's saying, no, let those who have sinned throw the first stone. We're all in the same boat here. He's calling that out, and he's bringing this mercy and this grace, because he actually issues to the lady at the end of the of this story, he issues her a, a forgiveness. If you want to say liberation by love, he offers her a second chance. He's, he forgives her. He says, and sin no more. But he's, he's, he says, does anyone condemn you? No, either do I. I mean, Jesus doesn't condemn her. He, just, he, release, he, lets her, he releases her. There's forgiveness. There's liberation in this story. There's mercy here. I heard a story this week that kind of sums up a little bit of maybe the point. And it was kind of a crazy story, I think. And it really happened because it was a family member of mine was talking to the plumber and the defibrillator. The story is called The Tale of the Plumber and the Defibrillator, but it actually happened apparently in East Belfast like a week or two ago. A uh, plumber and his apprentice had visited a lady in East Belfast to fix some pipes, I assume. She's an elderly lady. Out in the garage, they were working away, and the lady walked in and collapsed on the garage floor, which is really sad, this really happened. She was having cardiac arrest, so the plumber got down on his hands and knees, and he was actually administering CPR. The apprentice, who was there, called 999, and the 999 operator wisely said, listen, there's a surgery on the street. Run there and get a defibrillator. Brilliant, like 20 yards up the street, you run at the front door, run down. The surgery was open, but the, the door was closed because they have a buzzer system. And, and so he, started, he pressed the buzzer, and he was like, I need in. The intercom opened up. I need in because I need a defibrillator. There's a lady in need. And the person on the other end was like, sorry, what, sorry? And he's like, I need a defibrillator. There's a lady that needs it. And she's like, um, does she, is, she, is she a registered patient with the surgery? <laughs> no. She's literally on the floor in the garage. I need a defibrillator. I need to get in. What's her date of birth? What's her GP? At this point, he was about to kick the door. He was about to kick the door down when the door of a doctor in the surgery was ajar, and the doctor came out, opened up, and realized what had happened. They got the defibrillator. Don't worry. They got the defibrillator. They got to the garage. They were able to use that. The ambulance came, took the lady to hospital. So it ended well. We were talking about this with my family. You know, you tell stories like this about protocols and about different things. And it's not a slight upon the health service. My wife works for the health service. So. But you know that sometimes you can get so lost in the protocol and in the rules that you fail to see that there's someone trying to bash the door down because someone's dying outside. You get that? Like there's, sometimes you're so lost in the rules that you kind of miss what's happening in the real world in front of you. And it's kind of like what's happening in the story that we've been talking about. It's like the Pharisees are trying to dot the I's and cross the T's and keep the law of Moses. And they kind of don't realize that like, there's a world of, of need out there. In fact, there's people on the floor. They need the door bashed down because they need help. 
they need a doctor. And I kind of think that this story is like, is like that story of the plumber and the defibrillator. Because there's a, all of us are walking around with this kind of great sickness. We all struggle at times. We're, we're kind of, you know, affected by the world we live in. Unless there's a kind of anyone who's perfect in the room. <laughs> um, but we're, there's a, we're all in need of a life-saving word. Or a life-saving act of mercy. Or a life-saving community of second chances. Or a life-saving path of liberating forgiveness. Or a life-saving hand to reach out. But if the door isn't open in our hearts, or even in our churches, and the buzzer kind of keeps going unanswered, then we're worth the hope. We get lost in the law and the rules and in the protocol, and we miss the spirit of the law, which is to bring life, to bring mercy, to bring liberation, to bring compassion. And so we all have these expectations of how life should go. We, we have expectations on our own lives. And sometimes there's just other human beings. You ever get that? There's other human beings kind of get in the way of like your own life and how you want it to go. It's kind of a nuisance. It's kind of called living on earth. But instead of judging, perhaps we need to change our focus kind of upon ourselves. And like what Jesus is saying, think about we're all in the same boat here. We need to offer compassion and wisdom. Look at your own heart. I think it applies to all of us. <clears throat> no matter whether we're on the left or on the right politically, no matter what kind of theology we have, what we believe, where we find ourselves, we can be full of self-righteousness. We can judge others. We can want to change our enemies, the other, that, that person with the other different theology, the other different political perspective. We always want to judge and change them. It's not like Jesus' creative and messy third way of mercy is kind of saying, no, let's look at our own hearts and let's build a better world together. Let's look at our own hearts and let's be determined to build a better world together. Let's look in the mirror, not to condemn ourselves, but to receive grace, to see ourselves that we're caught up in this great sickness, all of us, and that we're all made of dust, and that we all need mercy and compassion to walk this life that has been given us. Here's the thing about the stoning bit. Stoning was the choice of execution, I suppose, because think of it, it fulfills the goal, the person's killed in the end, but no one individual is kind of culpable, like everyone kind of gets away with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you only have to throw one, kind of everyone throws one, and then it's like, do you know what I'm trying to say? It's one of the reasons why stoning was chosen, because it's a, commun it's a communal act. And Jesus is also calling that out, the kind of the spirit of the crowd, where you get caught up in the crowd and in the mob mentality. And he's saying, no, look at your own heart and life. As an individual, you have autonomy as someone made in the image of God. Examine your own heart and make your choices based on that as a child of God. Not get caught up in the spirit of the mob or the crowd, which nearly you would say is the satanic spirit. It's the, it's the crowd that executed Jesus. Really nice people, I bet but nearly like kind of caught up in the melee and in the crowd and in a spirit that is not of Christ, nearly like an antichrist spirit. That's kind of can happen. It can happen. You've seen it. 
from the most mundane things where you kind of get caught up in some like name calling or whatever to right the way through to the, mo- the worst of humanity. We do things to one another that we would be ashamed about when we go home and look at it in isolation. Jesus' wisdom here in this story is beautiful. He's calling that kind of spirit out. He's calling us all to examine our own hearts. He's calling us all to see ourselves in need of that life-giving word of grace, of mercy, to build a better world together. Jesus' words, his creative, messy, third way of mercy cuts through all of that and doesn't get caught up in it. Because think of it, Jesus could have called another crowd to deal with the crowd. He could have matched that energy with the energy that was there. It's often the way of the world that we see some injustice and we get... So we, 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 we come at it with the same kind of self-righteousness as we see in the other person. That's the way of the world. It's the way, it's when the scriptures talk about a, the world, that's, that's what they mean, the spirit that you come at something, that you come at the self-righteousness with your own self-righteousness. And this is why Jesus' way is so unique and creative and merciful. It's a beautiful story because Jesus takes nearly like the ugliness out of the mob, as Brian Sand would say. It was this bloodthirsty mob, and yet he called them to contemplate their own humanity in the moment. In a sense, Jesus wasn't just trying to save the woman in this moment, but he was trying to save everyone around to see that they all need a doctor but also to offer grace, to mercy, forgiveness, a way forward that is truly the way of liberating love. Not getting caught up in the law and the rules, but seeing the beauty of a life and a a posture of compassion and mercy. I don't believe that this negates prophetic confrontation, because I think the church and Christians do need to be prophetic. We do need to call out injustice, We're not to live passive lives. We need to live with our convictions, call it out when we see it, call it injustice in this world. But from a spirit of Christ and not a a worldly spirit of self-righteousness or judgment. And the difficult thing that Jesus calls us to do is to turn the other cheek, is to love our enemies, is to love the victimizers as much as the victims the accusers in the story as much as the accused, which is the hardest thing. We've been talking about that already in this series. That Jesus calls us to love the accusers and the accused, and the accuser and the accused even in us. I guess it's a healthy question to ask, where can I find myself in the story? Because when I look at the story, I find myself as the woman. I find myself as the judgmental religious leader. I find myself all over the story, depending on what day it is. Because our hearts are complicated. These attitudes of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, these patterns of thinking, like the Pharisees were thinking, you know, that we've got to follow the law. Jesus is frustrated in chapter 8. He goes on to say a lot of harsh things because he's saying, you're not, this is not the pattern of God. This is not God's thinking. You're missing the point. Instead, we as Christians, as those following the way of Christ, is perhaps even trying to put into practice the creative 
messy third way of mercy. We acknowledge that nobody on this earth has walked the same path. We can judge people, but we, we, miss the whole, we miss the whole understanding that that person has been walking on a road and shaped by their environment and we don't fully appreciate how they've reached that point. Whether that is the woman in the story or whether that's the religious leader in the story, we don't know their story and how they got to that point and we miss their humanity. And again, Jesus is calling that out. Why did Jesus stoop down and write in the sand? Why did he do what he do? Why did he send the lady on her way and not condemn her, but release her in mercy and in grace? Well, because loving is a messy business. Writing it in the dirt, it's a messy business, but we remember that we're all inhabitants of this place called earth. We're all made from the same stuff. We're all made from the dust. And here is the thing that I've noticed, and I don't know whether you've noticed it too, is that sometimes the words that we use to judge others are actually the words that we have to judge ourselves. I don't know if you've ever noticed that phenomenon, but it really is true. The words that we use to judge others are often really shaped by the ones that we believe about ourselves. Another way to put that is that the stones we throw tend to kind of land at our feet. And they kind of do land at our feet in this story. They drop the stones. Because we are harshest on others about the own things that we struggle with. It kind of comes out of us. It's why it's so damaging. It's why the Jesus life and his invitation is so liberating because it liberates us from the prison of our own hearts, our own minds, and our own thinking. Sometimes we can be the harshest on ourselves, the most judgmental on ourselves. And the grace and mercy of God for us is that we are children of God, is that we have this sickness and he is our great healer, is that he invites us into this full life of following him and having life to the full, not living under judgment. And so the invitation here is the invitation to us, Redeemer Central, I believe, which is to drop the stones and receive the life-giving mercy of God. It is to continue to reflect upon who we are and receive the grace of God for ourselves so that we may go out and build a better world. It is to love our enemies. It is to see the best in our enemies. It is to call them to this same third way. It is to call them to receive mercy, even from us. I really, really think that if we kind of can get this whole idea that Jesus is about, I think it really can make a difference in the world because when I look around the world, when I look on social media, all I see is like the same energy from all sides, no matter whether it's a theological conversation, a political conversation, no matter what it is. And as Christians, we've been given this call to live a different way, to, to, to come into the, the situations of life with some kind of creative, messy mercy, and to see everyone around the table as human and as worthy of grace and a worthy of life. Jesus did not try to fix people's moral lives. He loved them despite of their lives, whatever way they were living. And we're called to do the same. We're called to love. We're called to be the shadow that Jesus cast. 
Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. And we are called as the church to be the kingdom of God in the world, to proclaim the liberating, liberating message of the kingdom. So before we judge, before we question, perhaps we lead with mercy and with compassion. I'd love us to come to the table this morning, but before we do, I can't get out of my head the words that this passage kind of finishes with. Well, it's in verse 12. That to follow Christ is to walk in the light. And I kind of feel like this is Transfiguration Sunday today. It's the Sunday that bridges Epiphany into Lent. And it captures that moment when Jesus was lit up with light on the mountain, the two prophets. And I can't think of a better way to finish this story and to pray those words that we would receive the light of life and that we would that walk that path, not in darkness, but in light. As the world rages on, as the world fights on judging one another, may we as the church learn to live well and love well in the spirit of Jesus, offering grace and compassion every step of the way. I'd love to invite you to stand. I'd love to invite the band up to come as we finish. Because as we're reflecting just on this amazing little encounter, this story, um, I noticed that, you know, at the start of chapter 8 of John, you see this, this woman at uh, risk of being stoned. But if you read on to the very bottom of chapter 8, you actually see Jesus at risk of being stoned. He angers everybody so much that he's in risk of being stoned. And it's nearly like a metaphor or a foreshadowing of what Christ goes on to do at the cross. And that he stands in our place. And since he exchanges himself for us, he receives the mob's mentality, even in upon himself, the sin of the world upon himself. It's like kind of foreshadowed in this. And again, as I thought about that more, I also thought about this table, and I thought about how this table really calls us to drop stones and to receive bread. You know, like to exchange the stones that maybe some of us are actually carrying in our hands today, even against some people, even in the room, or some people groups out there that we really don't like or the people that we think feel judged by, or the people that we judge. And we carry the stone. And this table calls us to drop our stones and to receive the bread of life, the gift of life, the body of Christ. And so I'd love us to come to the table today with that in our hearts and our minds, that we're receiving the life of Christ at this table. We're exchanging the stones of judgment and the spirit of the world for the spirit of Christ and the bread of life. And I'd love us to pray a liturgy as we come to the table that Noah's gonna put up the transfiguration liturgy. I'd love us to pray this through and then I'd love to do the communion liturgy and then Curtis and Courtney are gonna come up and serve communion. Uh, just in a moment, as they do that, they'll come up and serve communion. So here, if you're new in Redeemer, you're welcome at the table. This table is an open table. It's Jesus' table. You're all welcome to come to the table of grace. Um, come and receive the elements and take them just as we sing. Before we do that, let's pray this liturgy together. Jesus, we have seen your majesty and we're so captivated by the light of your face, shining like the sun. 
and your clothes dazzling white. You are more important than all who came before or after you, more than Moses or Elijah, more than any prophet, priest, or king, more than any pastor, politician, or world leader. In you, every message is confirmed, every message of hope, every message of peace, every message of reconciliation, the identity and character made known in the Son, reckless forgiveness, radical love. We will look to you, we will live by your light until the day dawns and the morning star rises in the hearts. Amen. Please do come to the table as we sing together and worship.